Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon. I'm Edward Greenspan. Welcome to Policy Speaking. As you may recall, in our last episode, we talked about how hard young people are being hit by the economic effects of COVID-19. Like many people, I'm sure, I'm troubled by the high numbers who have either lost jobs outright or lost the majority of hours they work. And so, indeed, I raised this issue when I testified in front of the House of Commons Finance Committee. The evidence shows that for a young person graduating into the job market at a difficult moment in the life of the economy, when the market isn't able to accommodate them, the damage goes on and on. Their earnings over the following decade are reduced by 10% or more versus their peers who happen to have more fortunate timing. Millennials who graduate into the financial crisis are still struggling to catch up, not just at work, but how and where they live. Uh, The McKinsey Global Institute has said the 2008-09 graduating class is now going through its second, quote, once-in-a-lifetime downturn. That's two once-in-a-lifetimes in a a decade. And if you didn't go to post-secondary, it's going to be even worse. I want to understand this better, as I know you do too, so I reached out to someone I haven't actually had the opportunity to meet before, but have been curious about for some time, as I've encountered his research and media commentary. His name is Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at the University of British Columbia, where he specializes in the evolution of standards of living in Canada. He's also the founder of an organization called Generation Squeeze, which uses facts and figures to advocate for young Canadians in the political realm and the marketplace. Good to have you on Policy Speaking, Paul. Look, maybe we could just start by, uh, before we jump to the current predicament, maybe you could just tell us what is and why is Generation Squeeze? Well, as your introduction captured, Generation Squeeze is on the one hand, an organization that provides a voice for younger Canadians in politics and the market to draw attention to then a demographic reality that has happened for younger Canadians in recent decades. And the, the reality socioeconomically is that younger Canadians are going to school more to land jobs that pay less. They start with student debt more often for that privilege. They then face housing prices either as renters or aspiring owners that are up tremendously. And in that context of having to, you know, their hard work not pay off like it used to, they're then inheriting larger government and environmental debts. And so this is a very significant generational challenge for younger Canadians coming of age today. And that challenge existed well before the pandemic. And interestingly, it is now being exacerbated by the pandemic. So Gen Squeeze exists to try and you know, promote a vision of Canada that works for all generations, promotes intergenerational solidarity by wanting to make sure we continue to adapt for our parents and grandparents while simultaneously making sure that we live a proud legacy for their kids. So you talk about a 360 degree squeeze, and I guess that's what you're describing. It's sort of coming from all angles. That's absolutely right. Uh, And it, it really starts though with this growing gap between 
our home prices and our earnings, and then is cemented by less urgent levels of adaptation for younger Canadians by comparisons with others. And I might add, it's happening in a context where actually, you know, when you look at gross domestic product, this has not been a time of, of stinginess. This is actually a time when we have more affluence on average than ever before, and yet we're not using that to adapt for younger Canadians to, for whom the economic vulnerabilities have shifted. So as you say, then along comes uh, the COVID crisis. How do you expect this to play out in intergenerational terms? Well, I think there are two parts to the story. On the one hand, I think that the pandemic has created a moment of absolutely stunning and kind intergenerational solidarity. So why don't I start there? But then I hope you are gonna ask me about how it uh, also is straining pre-existing intergenerational tensions. But there is this moment of stunning solidarity and that gives me a great deal of hope because we know from the data that no demographic is immune to the disease. And for sure, every Canadian is facing risks if our medical care system collapses under the weight of COVID-19 pressures. But it is also true that not everybody in our population faces equal risks. COVID-19 especially is threatening people with weaker immune systems. And this includes many of our beloved aging parents and grandparents. And, and the data show, I'm going to give you BC data, but it is uh, indicative of Canadian data. The median age of COVID-19 hospitalizations is 69. The median age for people passing away from COVID-19 is 85. And Every one of those desks is a tragedy. I lost my grandmother not that long, not from COVID-19, but it's a personal tragedy for me. But 85 is actually longer than average life expectancy in Canada. And so what the, the age trends in the data are showing us is something very instructive. Yes, our societal-wide physical distancing practices have been developed to increase everyone's personal safety. And I think early on in each country, the reactions have been driven by everyone's sense of fear for their own personal safety and that of their family. But the age patterns are now becoming clearer and clearer to us that so much of our physical distancing has been legislated in some of our provinces, even um, enforced by fines, to increase protection for those who are vulnerable in our population, and that is our aging demographic. And I believe the societal-wide acceptance of these extraordinary physical distancing norms is an example of a stunning and kind expression of intergenerational solidarity that we should celebrate and want to sustain. Well, it sounds on the one hand like, like a great expression of intergenerational solidarity. On the other hand, when you put it that way, it sounds like the economy is closing down for young people who need to pay off their student debts who maybe are overwhelmed by rent and uh, or mortgage costs. And uh, it's closed down because of threats to people who are between 69 and 85 in some ways, who by and large will have left the, uh, the labor market. So are we, are we overprotecting society and in, and in doing that, discriminating along the way? Well, and this gets to the place where the pandemic starts to create risks for pre-existing intergenerational tensions because physical distancing to fight the spread of the virus has made the pandemic response a quote-unquote war on two fronts where we're battling two very distinct and equally challenging harms. The one we're focusing initially on was viral and increasingly now we're focusing on harm caused to the economy. And this, I think, is making it really difficult for us to act in accordance with a guiding principle of medicine. I don't know if your listeners will know the term, the Hippocratic Oath, but it's this, this idea in medicine, like, do no harm. That's, this is the motto that doctors bring to their work. But I think in the COVID context, it now has a 
created a really perplexing balancing act. Like for whom do we minimize harms? Which harms? At what cost? And for which group? And I think these kinds of questions now are motivating quite heated debates about how and when to reduce physical distancing to reignite our economy. Because those difficult health choices are confounded by these diverging generational implications. Controlling the virus requires participation by the young to reduce harm, and the harm often targets those who are older. But the resulting economic disarray may most often harm those who are young. And we need to surface this reality and make sure that we're finding the right balance. How do we maximize the protection we can deliver to the elderly members of our families who we all love and care for? And how can we help do that, them do that in ways that uh, minimize the harms we're causing to their kids and grandchildren? Are we getting the right balance? I think in a context of having too little information some months ago means many people will have wisely encouraged us to follow the principle of like, let's be risk averse. As we move forward into the summer and we must all anticipate um, you know, additional waves of this coming when the next flu season hits us, we might have to have more frank conversations. Let me say something that will be very controversial. I say it as a member of the, you know, the Faculty of Medicine. I work in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. I have heard the hardworking chief public health officer of our country who is doing noble work on our behalf say the following. This is not quite a perfect quote, but I think I've captured her meaning accurately. We can't prevent every death. We should do all that we can to prevent every death that is avoidable. I think this is a fundamentally interesting observation. At the individual level, I totally respect the nobility of the aspiration, but at a population level, we have to be mindful that we could use every last economic resource to prevent one more avoidable death and really, really compromise the things that actually promote health and well-being for vast numbers of other people. And we have to recognize that in this context now, health is more than not having COVID. In fact, in my business, my profession, we identify that health actually starts not with medical care, but it starts with the conditions where we're born, grow, live, work, and age, and the physical distancing required to fight the spread of the disease is absolutely causing us to compromise those conditions into which we're born, grow, live, work, and age. And we need to be explicit about that tension going forward. Okay, I want to come back to that point in a more general way in a couple of minutes, but but, okay. you, but you said to me you hope that I'll ask you how younger people are doing, so I was struck, and one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to reach out to you was I saw the Labour Force survey that came out um, two Fridays ago, and it showed people under 24, 34% of them had lost jobs, another quarter on top of that had lost all or most of their working hours. That's, you know, pretty devastating. So even just the out-of-work part, I think it's 14% of the population essentially have lost jobs, but 30% of all jobs lost have been, you know, have been among younger people. Then there's the students who won't get relevant summer work this year as part of their launch into into working life. And there's those who haven't uh, ever got properly launched uh, from past uh, problems of this sort. So is this a generational disaster in the making be, uh, above and beyond the general calamity? 
Generational disaster in the making. That's a very strong claim. Is it a generational challenge of enormous proportions? I'd be more comfortable saying that. I think we can still fend off the disaster. I'll be honest, when we first started fighting the pandemic, I was worried we would focus only on the viral fight and not at also fighting the economic harm that comes with physical distancing. I will applaud as a result the degree to which in particular a federal government has tried to introduce a range of emergency response benefits that have addressed the economic side. Is, has it been a perfect response? No. Are people still falling through the cracks? Absolutely. Is it especially younger people falling through the cracks? The answer to that I believe is often yes too because they were the group that had already been challenged by the way the economy had evolved for the decade or so before. I mean, this is the group that is hammered in something you haven't even identified yet. It's like the housing situation where rents and or mortgages, especially in our bigger cities, have so strained the incomes of average and even above average earners. And so the moment you then add any further economic disruption to, to the, the context, then it's so much harder for an emergency benefit system to actually make do. So sure, in Fredericton, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, $2,000 a month, can cover average two-bedroom rents and leave you about 50% of the money left over. But in some of our bigger cities, you have almost none of the money left over after uh, paying for a two-bedroom rent. And that is the conundrum with which students, with which young adults leaving either high school or post-secondary transitioning into the labor market, with those who have actually been there for a while and now have even started having their families because they're struggling with these costs because then on top of that, something like childcare costs another rent or mortgage size payment. And what's so fascinating now, I think, is that probably never before have so many Canadians' eyes been opened to the degree to which childcare is like a massive engine for our economy because the absence of childcare, the absence of school and the, and the time at, in the labor market that both school and childcare provide our, our adults, our parents, that has then further eroded the ability for people to devote time to the labor market even when they have not lost their jobs. So when we're coming out, of, I was about to go to housing, but you've, uh, you've opened it up already and and clearly it's such a huge cost in people's lives and and uh, has gotten you know so much growth in that cost over the last decade or so as you say particularly in the bigger cities you're sitting in vancouver today i'm sitting in toronto so uh both living in cities that uh that feel it i fortunately got into a real estate market many years ago but i have children who in the, are in the generation squeeze game and age group part of me and and so that's the base but you're even going beyond that when you get into childcare and and other issues. So would you be suggesting, Paul, that we have got, that this is a, a moment, uh, people in business say an inflection moment, uh, an inflection point where we need to be rethinking all of this in terms of policy and how policy interacts with, uh, with people of this generation? That's the opportunity, again, in striking the right intergenerational balance. I believe we are at that moment. The, the, the modest minor silver linings that come with the massive disruption imposed by the pandemic is that I think it is a opening our hearts and minds to new possibilities for our country and our country's place in the planet. That is promising. That is maybe an exciting seems too strong a word in the middle of all the hardship that's happening, but that is a silver lining to be hopeful about. And we, we need to grab it because 
you just described such a, a significant intergenerational tension in your own housing situation in your family. You said you got into the housing system yourself in Toronto a while ago. You would have then done it at a time when, you know, home prices were much more modest. They didn't seem that way, but in retrospect, they, in retrospect, they obviously do. Exactly. They didn't, they it took you hard work to buy your home if you are a homeowner. Absolutely no doubt about that. But the amount of hard work that was required back in the day, around 1976, let's say, for the typical young adult to, to uh, save a 20% down payment on an average priced home in the city where I'm living right now and in Toronto, in the provinces of Ontario and BC and across country, it was generally around five to six years. If you flash forward to today, across the country, it now takes 13 years on average, 15 in Ontario, 19 in so-called beautiful British Columbia, 21 years of full-time work for a young adult in the GTA, and an obscene 29 years in Metro Vancouver. This is clearly showing that we've allowed our housing market, our housing system to evolve in such a way where back in the day, someone thought I'm buying a home and isn't this great, this home is gonna provide me a great return on my investment. And we've gotten, especially more recently, we got so seduced by the great return on investment We've actually made it much more challenging for young people and other new entrants into our housing system to actually have housing be a place to call home. And that is an intergenerational tension because high home prices are not uniformly bad or uniformly good. The high home prices for myself now included, I'm kind of midway through that period, but I have gained a tremendous amount of wealth as home prices have gone up. And yet all of that wealth is not actually subject to taxation, interestingly, because it's in my principal residence. Whereas the consolation prize for someone 10 years younger than me, working in the same job as me, equally smart as me, working as hard as me, is that they probably can't get into home ownership and their consolation prize is much higher rents. That's a rough trade. And then we have seen in the pandemic, let me bring it back to the COVID moment, we have seen that the security of one's tenure, the security of one's housing has become such a dramatically important source of inequality. And even for homeowners with large mortgages, something I definitely can relate to, um, we've had the ability potentially to say, oh, I can't afford my mortgage right now and defer it. And then whatever deferred payments, you know, then are gonna get spread over you know, years of the mortgage. But for renters, it's been a very different issue. Sure, there's been injunctions on having to collect rent during the crisis so far in the pandemic. But if there's a backlog of rent not paid that's, that is building up, and then what's gonna happen when the injunction on paying rent is no longer there? It creates so much more stress for those renters. And we need to see that that lack of security of tenure, which we're increasingly building into the norm of our housing system, is disproportionately hitting a younger demographic and been made so hard by the pandemic. Okay, let's come back to the very, very, I think, difficult question, difficult balance to achieve that uh, you were referring to earlier in an intergenerational equity type of system. On one hand, we have this great moment of solidarity between grandchildren and grandparents. The parents sort of fit in there as, uh, as well, and, uh, and you know, concern by younger generations about the health of the older generations, concerned by the older generations about the financial well-being of, uh, of, of the younger generations particularly. On the other hand, there's a competition for resources and resources are gonna be, uh, are gonna grow more scarce. So how do you see that, let's just leave it general and we'll, we'll dig more deeply into it, but how do you see that playing out? How do you see that tension given, I suppose, that uh, 
baby boomers remain not the largest portion of the population. Millennials have supplanted them, but it's clearly the most politically powerful part of the population. How do you see this playing out over time? Yeah, this is not a new issue. This definitely pre-existed the uh, pandemic and it's getting to be like potentially exacerbated by it. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. So here are some observations, pre-pandemic observations. There were already tensions in our government budgets in terms of where the dollars that new dollars that we we're collecting as a result of economic growth were being allocated. And I just published like a new study in the Canadian Journal of Public Health looking how public spending was, was uh, flowing by age group and across medical care relative to the things that actually shape our health, what I call the social determinants of health, or my profession calls the social determinants of health, things like housing and childcare and income supports and uh, education, et cetera. And what we saw is that the greatest increases in spending were coming already later in our life course, both for things like old age security and medical care, which we use disproportionately when we're older, and in a much higher proportion than for things like childcare and for post-secondary, et cetera. And so there already was a sense. This is something that has like really motivated my work and my founding of Generation Squeeze. There has been less urgency to adapt for things that are risks and pressures for younger Canadians, and especially the generation raising young kids by comparison with what we do for the aging population. And yet we are hearing in the middle of the pandemic right now that people are worried we haven't done enough to get it right, for example, for our extended care facilities. And I know that as someone whose grandmother has lived in one for many years. And so there is going to be new pressure right now for our budgets to appropriately orient ourselves to try to minimize some of the tragedies we've witnessed in extended care facilities and to invest more in medical care. These will further shift our budget expenditures to later in the life course. This is happening at a time when there are now only four workers for every senior. And when we first formed our retirement income security systems and our medical care systems, there were seven workers for every senior. And so interestingly, we have already had a younger demographic squeezed by lower earnings and higher costs, then squeezed to some degree by these demographic shifts where we were being asked to contribute more to a, you know, a larger pool of seniors than existed when those seniors were young themselves. And do that in a context where a lot of political parties typically get Canadians votes by running on charging lower taxes. This is a very difficult circle to square from a budget standpoint because we are to some degree lowering the revenue we're collecting or reducing the potential of revenue we're collecting at a moment that, that demographically the demand is really high and we are simultaneously it's allocating more there to that later life course stage. This is one of the fundamental reasons why we don't yet in Canada have a national childcare system that is affordable and high quality. This is why we have tolerated tuition going higher and higher as the need for post-secondaries increase for people to compete in today's labor market. And I think that in the middle of the pandemic, we on the one hand have done tremendous things with our Canadian emergency response benefits and et cetera to try and soften over the, some of the harder edges that are being felt and cutting a younger demographic as we're responding to the pandemic. But as we come out of the pandemic, if we don't have a hard conversation about getting it right with our social investments from the early years onward, so we promote health and well-being from the early years onward, and do that in a way that's mindful of, wow, what does it mean to have a quarter of a trillion dollar deficit? How do we start to collect some dollars to pay back for some of the emergency response? 
if we don't have that in a new and different kind of way than we did before the pandemic, we are going to just cement in intergenerational tensions that are definitely unfair. I see that. And I see we have provinces that generally going into this, we're spending about 50 cents on a dollar on, on healthcare. And, you know, as you say, that was uh, squeezing out other costs. We, you say we, you know, we need to ask ourselves hard questions, but I'm not too sure that it's something that we really like to do, particularly when it's in, uh, you know, uh, pits uh, granny against grandchild. It doesn't need to pit granny against grandchild. It, it does not need to be a zero sum game. It does not need to be that what we're spending on an older person we stop doing in order to now find the dollars to spend on a younger person. There are other ways to come up with re additional resources. It could be reallocating for things that have very little impact on our aging population, or it could be a conversation about how we raised enough revenue. Those are both possibilities. It could, I guess, also be talking about some of the things that we do for an older demographic may just be inefficient at this stage. Do you need older folks who are living in million dollar homes and have an annual household income of like over 80,000? Do they need a special tax credit uh, that subsidizes pension income that costs us a billion and a half in a year? You know, to some degree, I might argue we don't need that as much any longer, but that's not really where the conversation is. I think that's a good point. And I, I think in the midst of this, we saw something that was kind of uh, surprising to me. And that was the $300 payment to everybody who re receives old age uh, pension and then a little higher for those who have a guaranteed income supplement. So my mom received $300. My mom is ecstatic to receive the $300. It means a lot to her. I don't think it's going to change her life uh, very much. And, and she's in a, a, in a independent living nursing home. And frankly, her costs, her income, course her savings are a little bit less but uh but you know it's not going to make a material difference on her so maybe we're making choices here that aren't necessarily going to the most urgent of need yeah and there are politics involved in these things so first i just want to be emphatic it does not need to be a zero-sum game between younger and older there is the intergenerational solidarity that i said is stunning and kind right now in the pandemic is something that we should focus on grab hold of and not let go going forward in addition to that, the politics, let's say, of the additional investment in seniors most recently. You know, people have been saying, well, you've got emergency benefits for so many other age groups, why not seniors? Well, to some degree, that reflects actually, we already had in place, we have in this country, a guaranteed annual income for seniors. It's part of the, it's called the GIS system. It's part of the old age security system. And so we had in place this really well-functioning benefit that could a smooth over the challenges in some respects caused by the pandemic. And in addition, at that life course stage, when you know the physical distancing from an economic standpoint can often be less challenging because you're often have being in retirement. And so you're not needing to lose that source of your income. And let's also acknowledge that the physical distancing and the because the risks are greater for retirees, they're needing to be extra vigilant. And so going to stores and whatnot may be incurring additional costs. And so $300 per person is maybe an appropriate gesture. But it would have been wrong for people, in my view, to say that, oh, we were slow to respond to the income needs of seniors. I would say, no, actually, we have been doing that much more effectively for decades. That is one of the greatest social policies we ever created. Four decades ago, one in three seniors in this country were low income, too likely to go bankrupt when they wound up sick at a hospital, and too unlikely to be able to stretch their income into retirement after a career, especially a career of caregiving. But then we built our old age security system and we built our healthcare systems. And if you look at the like of, of the low income cutoff data, you will see that now seniors report the lowest rates of low income of any age group in the country, which is beautiful. 
and we should celebrate that. And to some degree, because we had these institutions in place to, that made that possible, that's what meant it was less urgent for us to create emergency response benefits on the financial side of the pandemic for an older population, as we were so urgently adapting to their needs on the viral side. Okay, I'm sort of stuck on this not zero sum game, I gotta say. I'm stuck there because Governments have uh, X amount of dollars. They can always, you know, increase taxes, have X. They can spend a bit more efficiently, you know, have X plus, X minus, et cetera. But they have limited amounts of, of dollars that they apply to a whole panoply of, uh, of social and economic uh, issues and demands and, uh, and, and necessity. So increasingly, we've seen money go to healthcare. I don't think that pressure is going to lessen any with what we've seen in long-term care homes and what we've seen elsewhere. And it seems to me that ipso facto, it leaves less money for other uses. There's also probably a political power issue to this. You know, you talk about uh, Generation Squeeze as the voice for younger Canadians in the world of politics and the marketplace. And it seems to me they're going to have to be fighting for resources and fighting for attention against other needs. There's a, there's a, I suppose, some kind of equivalent to Generation Squeeze and CARP and the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. So they have a pretty powerful and articulate voice, which I think older Canadians uh, uh, appreciate. So how does this play out? I guess, uh, what leaves you at this point optimistic? And what at this point makes you pessimistic? Oh, because I like that framing better than like the, it's a zero sum game. So good, great question. And you're right, CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired Persons is a great group. In fact, it's what inspired us to found Generation Squeeze. There'd been no counterpoint to CARP. And we saw that as a systems barrier in a political system that responds to those who organize and show up. And if uh, you didn't have an organization that was a voice for younger demographic, you risked not having those issues be taken into, into consideration in our world of politics as much. So what makes me optimistic? Well, when we talk about these tensions that exist between older and younger Canadians, it's not like the tensions that some might point to for the typical class analysis. You know, you know, sometimes the stories which we tell about class dynamics is you have some like rich white fat cats who are, you know, sucking the cream off the milk churned by all the hardworking hapless mice. And, and you know, when you tell the story that way, you're like, oh yeah, kind of like classes are intention, cats eat mice. But it, generations, are organized around love. Grandparents love their grandchildren, parents love their kids, kids love and revere their parents and grandchildren, generally speaking. And so I think that that love is what gives me hope. It is some of that love that is motivating our tremendous and stunning display of physical distancing to achieve protections for our aging family members right now. That gives me an enormous amount of hope. We tap into, in particular, the grandmothers of this country. We can do, you know, we, we can do so much to, for them to say, I need help as an aging person in our society, and I want to leave a proud legacy for my kids and grandchildren. And I know grandfathers feel that as well. What makes me nervous is not so much that generations want to be pit one against the other, but putting on a bit of a political science hat right now, the research is clear institutions that we built in the past to deal with past and what may often remain present concerns can gain enormous momentum and they can absorb a great deal of the oxygen or you know revenue from a government just because of that momentum even regardless even irrespective of whether or not there are new social risks emerging 
whether that's you know risks around climate change or how our housing system is really becoming unsustainable or how we need something new like a childcare system because it is an engine of our equality we want to get kids off to a good start and it's important for gender equality but because our medical care and our old age security systems have so much momentum they just keep winning larger and larger shares of whatever additional resources are available that's not the generations are pitting one against one another against each other but it's because of the momentum of those institutions and so I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic that we haven't yet got our governments to simply acknowledge the momentum those institutions have and to then revisit is that the right amount of momentum we want for them relative to the lack of momentum happening elsewhere where we need to build systems anew that's attention I think, Paul, when we move from the emergency phase here to the what have we learned phase and should apply, I suspect that we'll see that, you know, we sort of say in the public policy forum where we've done a lot of attention to future work, the future work is becoming present of work uh, before our very eyes. And I think that we've probably seen just by the need for so many new programs on the run that the old income support programs probably didn't work and presupposed in some ways that people were in work or out of work. That's the EI system. That's not necessarily the reality. There's in a gig economy, et cetera. There's an income movement reality that's different from whether you're in work and out of work. And I imagine we're going to see a lot of re-examination of those programs and whether our social programs are designed for the economy that we now live in. COVID or not COVID, just more exposed by the COVID crisis, probably. And I think we're in for some, for some very interesting debate and heart-wrenching discussions over the next six months to two years or whatever the time frame will look like. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The heart-wrenching, I think that there will be real challenges there. And yet, I, I want to push us to, as, as we're dealing with that challenge, come back to what has been so beautiful. You know, in BC, we are serenaded almost every day by this wonderful chief public health officer, Dr. Henry, who's got this standard line of, you know, be kind, be calm, be safe. And I think she has been very intentional about her focus on the kindness. And the kindness is at the heart of this intergenerational solidarity we're demonstrating at this moment. And so we want to harness that and capture that wisdom going forward because that can deal with, that can help us overcome the challenges. And I want us all to know that this country can and should work for all generations and give each and every one of us the chance to live up to our potential, enough time and money to enjoy life and the opportunity to leave our cities, our country and our planet better off than we found it. We have that potential. We have not always been living up to it of late, but the degree of disruptions and adaptations we've made to fight the pandemic showcases for me that, wow, we can make major adaptations. And that's what's going to be required to live up to that vision of a Canada that truly does work for all generations. Well, I think that's an inspiring message for us to end on. Paul, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for explaining the squeeze and the uh, particular ways that this crisis is uh, is landing on a younger generation and the challenges uh, that throws up uh, for us. And uh, and I appreciate your sense of optimism and uh, and cross-generational solidarity. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to connect. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on uh, on Policy Speaking. That was Paul Kershaw, professor at the University of British Columbia and the founder of Generation Squeeze. Well, that was a great um, conversation from my point of view. I learned a lot and I want to I want to bring into the conversation for a couple of minutes. Um, Katie Davey, 
our producer on policy speaking, who is uh, a member of Generation Squeeze herself. I think she had a birthday this week, actually, and uh, it's not my place to reveal how old she is, but it's not that old by my standards. Uh, in any case, Katie, what did uh, welcome on, welcome back, and what did you make of uh, of what you were hearing? Yeah, a couple of things that really resonated with me. Um, first. I liked the point that Paul made about kind of the momentum within institutions and systems. I think that's bang on. I think one of the great things about having such a robust uh, and competent public service in Canada means that things kind of move on their own and they can kind of keep going, if not challenged and reimagined. And I think we talk a bit about whether it's the long-term care system or whether it's, you know, the housing system or the healthcare system. I think there's a lot of systems reimagining that can happen. And I think it gets a little bit to your point as well around the zero-sum game. I think if we can do things a bit smarter, to be honest, and then adapt to a, a 21st century reality, I think that maybe there are cost savings there and things can be a bit more reinvested. So I think COVID-19 has showed us what's possible as far as innovative, quick solutions to problems from a government perspective. So I'm hopeful that we'll see that in a post-COVID world as well. Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting that both older Canadians, you know, particularly those in long-term care, they've suffered uh, terribly, and they've suffered, you know, uh, in many cases uh, with their lives. That doesn't become an economic issue until you look at the system and say, okay, there's there's something in that system that isn't taking good enough care of them. And we probably will have to spend more. You know, to some extent, that may be efficiency, it may be structure, it may be a lot of issues, but I'm sure the dollars will figure into it. At the same time, you know, younger people are losing jobs in in uh, disproportionate uh, numbers and they're and they're losing opportunity. And this is a very critical stage in their in their launch. And what are we going to do about that? And I'm hoping that public policy and the marketplace can respond uh, intelligently to both pressures at the same time. But you're right, one side has is better organized in terms of its vested interests. One side votes more than another side uh, votes. And quite frankly, everybody in the country, I think, is feeling ashamed of what's happened uh, with uh, with senior citizens. They feel, rightly so, that we have uh, we have failed our, our parents, our grandparents, uh, in many ways, so that will weigh on us, and and taxes have a sort of sort of natural ceiling to them as well. When you live in Canada, and you live next to the United States. So how do we? How we'll pull that all together leads us, I guess, for, you know, for government right now, they have their heads down and they're looking at this crisis and managing this crisis as they should be. But soon they're going to have to look up and figure out how do we repair different forms of damage with so much more debt on our shoulders. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting. Just today, I was making a student loan payment, right? So some of the some of that part of the conversation really resonated with me as well. Students and whether it's because tuition is growing or, you know, cost of living, et cetera. Uh, there are a lot of young people right now that are are thinking about that, right? They're still maybe having to make student loan payments. I mean, I, let me actually make a disclaimer. I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate because I can make an optional student loan payment. They're paused right now. But it does make me think about things like home ownership, right? If I, if I have this huge student loan debt I'm trying to pay down, I'm not necessarily considering taking on a mortgage uh, and definitely not one that's going to take me 21 years to pay off, right? And, and we talk about kind of 
rebuilding the economy and contributing to the economy in a meaningful way if we have a huge portion of the population that just opts out of making those larger capital investments, it does have an impact, right? And you know, I know, Ed, you're thinking a lot about what the rebuild looks like and, and some of those different elements, but I think it is, it's this big, big circle, right? But all of these different pieces really add up and I think it'll, it'll take a multi-pronged approach. That's kind of what I'm thinking about is or what, what are the tools and what are the different pillars of rebuilding that will be needed when we come out of this to tackle the many different issues that have been amplified through COVID. Yeah, well, you're right. For the public policy forum, this is our bread and butter to try to think about how policy is applied to build a better Canada, fairer, more prosperous, uh, more resilient uh, nation. And got to say that it'll be challenging. We do have Rebuild Canada program that uh, you know that will be examining a host of issues about the public economy, about how we have a, a more sustainable, digital, competitive private economy. Uh, the trajectory of all kinds of issues have changed. Uh, the geopolitical tra- trajectory has. Uh, we had tensions between the United States and China that Canada was having to sort of figure out how it was going to manage its way, but those have been uh, badly exacerbated. Future work issues, fairness issues. So we will be delving into this. This will be one of our main focal points over the next uh, over the next couple of years for sure. First, of course, we have to reopen the economy. And I was very interested in that being presented as a point of generational tension as well in the discussion today. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think you made some really good points right off the top about how compressing the economy or, or whatever term we're using dramatically impacts young people or core working age people is maybe a better way of framing it. And, and the benefits of doing it from a health perspective are on older people. I think honestly, though, what is so interesting or and interesting isn't maybe the right word. I think what is apparent, apparent is better, is much of these decisions were made because we just didn't have the, the data, right? We didn't really know what the death rate was. We didn't really know how it was going to impact, how COVID-19 was going to impact different you know, age groups, different folks with predispositions and things like that. So I think there is a case of of learning that we can kind of glean from this. And I think when we talk about systems rebuilding as well, some of that data sharing from different levels and orders of government, both internationally and here in Canada, should be part of the conversation, I think. We're going to come back to this topic. There's a lot, a lot to discuss here, and we're going to continue on policy speaking to try to gather some understanding and insight into what the post-COVID-19 world uh, looks like and how we make sure that it, it's uh, the best world possible under uh, difficult circumstances. Katie, I want, I want to thank you for, um, uh, for joining us. I want to sort of say publicly that you were more than just our resident millennial. So thank you for being on Policy Speaking and thank everybody else for listening to our podcast today. At the end of each episode, we like to take a moment to salute some of the members of uh, PPF, some of our partners who go above and beyond the call of duty in these uh, difficult times. Today, a shout out to the Canadian Medical Association's Foundation, which has recently announced a COVID-19 Community Response Fund for Vulnerable Populations uh, initiative. And the CMA has donated, uh, the foundation has donated $10 million for vulnerable populations to address homelessness, food insecurity, mental health, and those affected by substance abuse. This will help municipalities support frontline workers and services during the pandemic. 
In addition to that, the Canadian Medical Association is working with the Public Health Agency of Canada, Provincial and Territorial Medical Associations, and the Council of Chief Medical Officers of Health to share the most up-to-date and reliable information with physicians and patients. The CMA has created a dedicated page on their website that provides resources and tools on such matters as how to use masks, how to care at home for a person with COVID-19, provides a direct link to the Government of Canada's self-assessment tool and app, talks about how to stop the spread, and how to navigate personal health uh, during this pandemic. So this is a go-to source for trusted and reliable medical information. It's a good time in life to have trusted and reliable sources of information because you're not sure where a lot of things are coming from. So Canadian Medical Association has been with us for a long, long time. We thank them uh, for the work they're doing. And that is a wrap then on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National Newswatch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter and, you know, do visit our website as well for information on research that we're doing and convening we're doing. Uh, Again, ppforum.ca, www.ppforum.ca. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.